My major pain has, has been invisible. The mobility aid makes it better. It gives me freedom. It can get to the core beliefs we have about ourselves. Don't ever think you're alone. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Catherine, who's been chronically ill her whole life, but it became debilitating in college. Catherine has had some GI issues that have made it difficult for her to keep food or even water down. She's been diagnosed with rapid gastric emptying, also known as dumping syndrome, and rapid small bowel transit, which means that food is moving through her GI system too fast for her to absorb nutrients from it. But her GI issues are just one piece of the picture. She's actually managed to self-diagnose herself with both hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and POTS based off of things that she found online and then went to doctors to confirm. Catherine has been in and out of the hospital uh, with incredible dizziness and nausea and difficulty keeping food or liquids down. And she'll tell us about a couple of these hospital stays, one of which was incredibly traumatic, where she was being constantly accused of either doing these things to herself or making up her symptoms. She overheard uh, her care team talking about her outside of her room saying, hey, we don't know if she's for real or not. Um, So she talks about how unsafe and scared she felt during that hospital stay. She'll also talk about going through periods of grieving her body. Before these health problems made mobility an issue, Catherine was an aerial performer and aerial dancer. And she'll talk about grieving the fact that she hasn't been able to do those things as she has been tending to her health. But luckily, Catherine is finally in a place where she's finding some relief. Uh, She's currently using a feeding tube, which has helped tremendously to get her energy back up and her nutrition back up. And I actually heard from her after we recorded this podcast that her doctors have confirmed that she has compression in her duodenum that is either an anatomical variant or SMAS, or superior mesenteric artery syndrome, which we actually did a podcast about with Chalin a couple months ago. So however this diagnosis shakes out, they've at least found evidence of compression of her duodenum. So there is a reason why she's having difficulty getting this food down. And it's, you know, even more validation that there is something going on than she had when we recorded this podcast. And, you know, for anyone with chronic illness, getting that validation is such a big deal. And I was so happy to hear that Catherine is continuing to make steps towards getting more and more of her situation figured out so that she can make more and more steps towards living the best life possible within her chronic illness. This is another really great conversation. Uh, Catherine gave us a great glimpse into what she's going through and through some of the harrowing experiences she's had, some of the really horrific medical gaslighting that she's gone through. Um, And, you know, finding the strength to make it through that, to believe yourself and to keep fighting, keep advocating for yourself inside of a really tumultuous and frightening chronic illness experience. So I'm really excited to share it with you. We'll get to it in just a couple minutes. So as I've mentioned over the last few episodes, I'm doing a bunch of traveling this month. I am back in Seattle for a few days in between trips. Andy and I just got back from a wedding in Maine, and we had a really awesome trip. Uh, I'm going to save the details. We'll tell you all about it. Andy and I are going to sit down and uh, do a whole episode where we talk about our month of traveling. Once we're back from our next trip, which is Tahoe, we're going just a few days from now. And uh, as I'm recording this, actually, this episode will be released the day that I leave for Tahoe. And 
then I'll be in Tahoe for 10 days, and then we'll be back in the beginning of July. So I have made the decision to not put out an episode next week. I just don't have time to prep two episodes uh, right now before I leave for Tahoe. Um, it's just not in the cards for me right now. So I'm going to just give myself next week off from the podcast, and then we'll be back the week after in the beginning of July with a special episode of Andy and, and myself talking our, through our travels and telling you everything we've experienced. It's been a lot going on. I have some you know, health updates. I had a really great uh, conversation with my doctor this week, which was awesome because like the last appointment I had with her was very rushed and I didn't feel great about it, but we got a lot of time to sit down and talk on this appointment this week and got a lot of great new info. So yeah, Andy and I will have a lot to share with you, but we'll do that when we get back. And then we'll also have our bonus episode, our bonus Patreon episode coming out in the first week of July. It's going to be a few days after the first. It'll be sometime within that first week of July. But you know, since we're going to be in Tahoe for the first couple of days, it's just going to be a bit of a turnaround time for us to get that recorded. Um, but yeah, so that's what's going to happen. We're going to have an episode this week. We're going to skip next week. And then we'll be back the week after with uh, not just an episode with Andy and myself on the main podcast feed, but a bonus episode for everyone supporting the podcast on Patreon. So if you're interested in hearing our monthly bonus episodes or signing up to get special recognition and gifts for supporting this podcast, head over to patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast. This is a huge way to help support this show. I am very hopeful to someday turn this into a full-time living wage for myself just by creating this show. Uh, we're a long way from that, but every single person who signs up on Patreon gets us closer, and it's so incredibly appreciated in this time where I am unable to work because of my chronic illness, any regular income coming in to support this podcast is incredibly helpful. Uh, so head over to patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast. Extra special thank you to our Patreon producers who've signed up to support this show at the highest tier of $25 per month. Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. I appreciate you all so much, as well as everyone else who signed up to support this show. Monthly subscriptions start at just $2 per month. Speaking of financial support, I have a huge thank you to share. So a few weeks back, we had an amazing episode with Danielle, who told us about her harrowing experience with chronic pain. And after the episode came out, Danielle actually sent in a $100 donation in support of the podcast through PayPal, which I appreciated so much. I was totally shocked to see that and so appreciative. So Danielle, thank you so, so much for not just sharing your story, not just being a part of the Patreon community as one of our patrons, but also for that incredibly generous donation. I appreciate it so much. Uh, yeah, so just thank you, thank you, thank you. We also got a really interesting email from one of our listeners, Sarah, that I wanted to share with you. It says, Hi, Jesse. Firstly, I wanted to say that I recently discovered your podcast and have felt so much validation as a fellow chronic illness warrior and chronic pain sufferer. I have hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and several related diagnoses, and my path to proper diagnosis involved years of dead ends, medical gaslighting, and trying to come to terms with a dynamic new normal all the while having no idea what my future might hold. Thank you for creating something so beneficial for our community. I've learned so much about many different people's experiences of different kinds of illness slash disability through listening over the last several weeks, and I'm grateful for it. Tonight, I listened to an episode from March about Emily and her seizures. When she mentioned a doctor screening her using the Biden score, 
to assess hypermobility and mentioning Ehlers-Danlos as a possibility, having a seizure triggered by a tilt table test, mitral valve prolapse, very common in EDS, and a mention of neck pain, it made me immediately wonder if she could have CCI or cranial cervical instability. Instability in this area of the neck isn't that uncommon with EDS, as widespread joint instability is very possible. And I know seizures are one possible symptom of CCI. I happen to have lived in the Boston area for a very long time, including over the years searching for and finally securing a proper diagnosis of my own, and just moved west a few years ago. I don't want to dispense medical advice, which would obviously be inappropriate, but it sounds as though her doctors may be starting down a certain investigative path. And I happen to know from being involved with an EDS community in that area for years, that upright MRI is the only really appropriate imaging to pick up on CCI if present. Although many doctors in the area don't have enough knowledge of the condition to understand that. And as far as I know, there still aren't any upright MRI machines in the greater Boston area. I have met several people whose path to diagnosis was slowed by this fact. So if you feel comfortable doing so, I'd love if you could simply pass along the following to Emily in case her doctors seem to be considering related diagnostics but aren't sure about next steps. Key points. CCI diagnosis is properly done by upright MRI. This can be done in Rhode Island. Petra Kling, a surgeon in Rhode Island, has a wonderful reputation and is very knowledgeable about neurological and spinal manifestations of EDS and hypermobility conditions and could possibly be a good referral or resource along her path to diagnosis. I hope it isn't awful that I reached out to try and get this specific into a featured guest on the pod. My heart just really went out to her and I didn't feel right to have a few pieces of info that could possibly expedite her journey and not say anything. Cheers, Sarah. Sarah, thank you so much for your email. I did forward that along to Emily, and I decided to share it on the podcast as well, because that seems like pertinent information, especially on another episode where we're talking about someone with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, that an upright MRI is the best way to find cranial cervical instability. And of course, you know, I, I, love, I love that Sarah was mindful of the fact of saying, you know, it's inappropriate for me to dispense medical advice. I do the same thing in every episode of the podcast. It is very inappropriate for me to dispense medical advice. But what I love sharing is personal experience from people living with chronic illness who say, hey, this worked for me and potentially it could work for other people. So, uh, you know, there's nothing more frustrating than telling someone you have a chronic illness and having them immediately run down this list of things they want you to try. We talk about that all the time, you know, have you gone vegan? Have you tried yoga? Are you gluten-free? You know, the whole list of things that anyone who lives with chronic illness is already aware of. But a specific uh, tip like this for someone who's lived through something similar, I think is super valuable to share. And I thought it was very respectfully presented. And I'm, uh, you know, excited to share that. And I really appreciate Sarah writing in and sharing this information. We often talk on this show about how for a lot of these conditions, doctors don't necessarily know that much about them. You know, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, we keep talking about this, but this disease is just exploding in diagnostic regularity right now because doctors are finally learning more about it. And I think on top of that, patients are learning about it. People are having these symptoms and hearing about this disease on TikTok or YouTube uh, or Instagram or podcasts like this, taking that information to their doctor and saying, hey, I heard about this disease and this experience that this person talked about lines up with my experience, so can we check me for that? And being armed with knowledge and knowing what to ask your doctor can be really powerful. So I'm all about sharing that type of information and I appreciate when listeners on the podcast have something like that to share.
Something else we talk about on the podcast all the time is how you never know what the future may hold as far as new advancements in diagnostics or therapies or ways to help people live with chronic illness. And if you want to be a part of that, if you want to participate in research studies or surveys, if you have a diagnosis of any kind and you'd like to help the scientific community reach towards the future, you can sign up through Rare Patient Voice to participate in research studies and surveys and actually get paid for your time. So if that sounds interesting to you, check the description of this podcast for our link to Rare Patient Voice, where if you click that link and sign up through their services from the link, you'll actually be supporting this podcast while participating in research studies. So you can get paid, you can help to support this podcast, and you can help scientific advancement all at the same time. You can find that link in the description of this episode or just head to rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast. If you're interested in connecting with this podcast on social media, you can find us on TikTok and Instagram, both at Major Pain Podcast. And whenever available, I always tag our guests on each platform so you can have a quick and easy way to follow them on their social media. I know a lot of our guests are very interested in connecting with other people in the chronic illness community. So that's a great way to do so by finding us on our social media platforms. If you have anything you'd like to share with me or the audience, you can email me at majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to leave us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's a great way to help us to reach new listeners. You can also leave us a positive review on Spotify. It's very helpful to share the podcast with a friend or if you're a part of any chronic illness community where you think this podcast might be helpful. I always appreciate when listeners share the show with other people. And if you want to find all the ways that you can help to support this podcast, podcast, you can head to our website, majorpainpodcast.com slash support, and they are all listed right there. As always, I will remind you that I am not a healthcare professional. I am a content creator. So please do not take any action based off of what you hear on this podcast without first consulting with your doctor. And I'll also remind you one more time that there will not be an episode next week. I do not have enough time in the few days that I'm home to prep two episodes. So I'm just going to get this episode ready and then we'll be back uh, two weeks from when this episode comes out with more great content. So thank you so much for listening. Let's jump into our fantastic conversation with Catherine about her complex chronic illness situation. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to chat with you today. We talked a little bit before recording, and it sounds like you're going through a lot, and you're in the midst of a really complicated situation, so I'm excited to learn more. Uh, but before we do, let's get to know you a little bit. Why don't you tell us about yourself? So I'm Catherine. I currently am in school for social work. I have a minor in cognitive neuropsychology, which wow. I love. Um my goal with social work is to eventually become a counselor and also do um, more macro work too, but I want to work with survivors of domestic violence. And I also uh, more re recently have wanted to become a therapist that specializes in chronic illness. Awesome. That's very cool. Yeah. That's a very needed profession. Um because there's so many of us, you know, <laughs> there's yeah. so many people out there who are living through chronic illness. Do you mind sharing how old you are? I'm 22. You're 22 and you're on the East Coast, right? Yes. Yeah. So 
you're in school and you're dealing with chronic illness. Um, yeah. <laughs> what, do, what do you do for fun? Um, well, before I got like more sick, I used to be an aerial performer. So I did like circus arts and stuff. Whoa. But um, mo- like a couple weeks ago, I actually tried to do acro yoga again, which went well. Um, my body didn't tolerate it the most, but I definitely missed it and still want to do it. Um, I also really love doing art, um, especially ceramics. Um, and I, I have a dog. His name is Fergus. He's a Yorkie. I spend a lot of time with him. (laughs) I was training him to be a service dog, but more recently I took a step back from that. Um, just cause it's been hard to manage with my chronic illnesses and public access training was a little hard. Sure. Yeah. I love dogs. I, I miss having a dog. My, my dog passed away about a year ago and I, oh. I'm just starting to think about the possibility of getting another dog at some point. I'm not ready yet, but you know, yeah. I just love having a dog around. Um, there's nothing like coming home and having a dog excited to see you when you get home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially when you're you're chronically ill and you spend so much time at home, they can be such a good companion. Absolutely, totally. Well, let's let's talk about your chronic illness. So, Catherine, what is your major pain? My major pain, uh, well, my main major pain, I would say, is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, um, which I have several comorbidities, including. Um, uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, uh, rapid gastric emptying, rapid, s- rapid small bowel transit, uh, probable mast cell activation syndrome, vocal cord dysfunction, asthma, um, and some other um, issues. Yeah, so you got a lot happening at once. <laughs> Yeah, it's been a long process of trying to figure it all out. And I'm still trying to figure out, especially my GI issues and what's causing them. Yeah, you mentioned rapid gastric emptying, which uh, we've talked to several people on the show who have gastroparesis, which is delayed gastric emptying. But I've never Mm -hmm. heard of rapid gastric emptying. So what does that mean? It basically means um, when I eat or drink, uh, stuff goes through my stomach and my intestines really fast. Uh, Another word for um, at least the rapid gastric emptying emptying is called dumping syndrome. Mm. It's usually caused by um, surgery when you get like a, I don't know what they're called, like a gastric sleeve or like a weight loss surgery. But I didn't really have any surgery. But from the research I've been looking into, it's it it's um, highly connected to POTS, like gastroparesis. So um, actually, it's more common to have rapid gastric emptying as opposed to gastroparesis with POTS from the research I've been doing. So that's wow. been interesting. So right now, um, regarding um, my joints and my back and stuff like that. I deal with daily chronic back pain, which kind of fluctuates depending on the day or what I'm doing. Um, I also have joint pain. I 
I get um, dislocations and subluxations in my joints, especially my shoulders and my hips and my fingers. Um, I also have a lot of brain fog most days and I deal with um, fainting, uh, pre-syncope. I have a lot of difficulty um, concentrating lately, especially with like the brain fog and just feeling, I feel, sometimes I feel like I'm in a bubble because it's like the fog is so thick that I feel like I'm distanced from the world around me. Mm. So lately I've been mostly, mostly focusing on helping my GI issues as they've made it really hard for me to be able to eat right now. I'm mostly only able to have liquids, which is hard. Um, and I, the pain that comes from whatever I'm dealing with right now, um, is very significant and sometimes will travel to my back and, um, make it harder for me to breathe when I have, when I eat food or larger quantities of water. So, wow, that sounds really hard. So, so you've got, you know, the, um, chronic pain and, uh, hypermobility associated with Ehlers-Danlos, which is a connective tissue disorder. You've got constant pain in your abdomen and difficulty getting nutrients in from your um, rapid gastric emptying. And I can see that, you know, you have a feeding tube uh, going through your nose right now. And I'm assuming that's to deal with the fact that you're not getting enough nutrients from actually eating food. Um, And then you're constantly dizzy, constantly having the brain fog, um, possibly from POTS. But then all these things kind of blend together and, you know, it's hard to say what's happening because of what, but we just know that you're in a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort, and it sounds like you're having a really hard time functioning normally and just getting through day-to-day life. Is that, does that sound accurate? Yeah, it definitely comes and goes. Well, I'm always have some sort of pain, but it definitely fluctuates depending on the day and time of day. But um, it's definitely been a lot to try to like sort through all of those symptoms and then still like build a quality of life and like have a life outside of just um trying to care for my chronic illnesses totally yeah does anyone else in your family have any issues like this so i my dad isn't diagnosed with ehlers-danlos syndrome but i think it comes from his side of the family Mm. as he's dealt with. Um, I think he's had POTS at least, or has POTS. And um, my grandma has super soft and stretchy skin and she has a lot of joint issues. Mm. And I found out about a year ago that one of my cousins on my dad's side, one of my dad's cousins has um, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and they have gastroparesis, mast cell activation syndrome and POTS. So it's been interesting to connect with them because I don't know, I've never known anyone in my family with any sort of diagnosis of these things. Yeah. That's besides asthma and allergies. Yeah. That's really, really interesting because, you know, we're, we're going through this period of time right now where, um, information and knowledge and diagnostic criteria around Ehlers-Danlos are 
way more available and a ton of people yes. are suddenly being diagnosed and discovering mm-hmm. that their parents or their grandparents have been carrying this disease and have been suffering with chronic pain and um, you know connective tissue issues that they never knew about because this disease wasn't very well known. So yeah, it sounds yeah. like you're one of those people living inside of that and your family as well. So yeah, I mean, it's just so I, it's just so interesting to think about because I'm, I'm actually going through the process of having genetic testing done right now. And mm-hmm. my parents are also going to be tested. So, you know, they're going to compare my genome to my parents' genome. And it's mm-hmm. just like this stuff was not available one generation prior. And all of this information, like all this genetic information just wasn't available before. Um, so, yeah, it's just medicine is changing very rapidly in what's possible yeah. and, you know, uh, and and the way that we kind of contextualize ourselves and our history and our family's history is changing be- because of these advances in science. It's really interesting. Yeah, definitely. I yeah. I I wonder what there's going to be in the future. Yeah, totally. I know. I was just thinking about that. Like, um, I was watching Frasier and they had like a landline phone, and I was just thinking, man, you know, I grew up with all this technology that just isn't around anymore. You know, like <laughs> all of this stuff that seemed futuristic when i was a child is now retro and yeah <laughs> it's like what what will the future hold that's a great question you know like technology is advancing science is advancing and you know medicine is advancing so i'm just so curious what the future of diagnostics is going to look like you know instead of going through these like 10 year long battles to find a diagnosis people might go you know just have their genome scanned and find out that afternoon or even find yeah. out at birth or something i don't know so when did your issues with hypermobility start did you notice that when you were younger yeah so um i've always been a really flexible kid i've been able to do like the splits the just like bending around it was just even pictures when i was a baby i would just sit in the most weirdest positions um i i actually um well i started having problems with being very a very picky eater when i was little and i would avoid a lot of foods and as i got older and was walking around i would roll my ankles all the time um i would i didn't know that i was subluxing my joints but that would happen often and i i had times where like I like dislocated my pinky, but like I would put it back in um, on my own. (laughs) Um, But, (laughs) but anyway, um, I, I started, my mom called them ticks, but I don't know what I would call them, but I would do things to like make myself feel more comfortable. Cause I had, I didn't know that it was not normal to be in so much pain in my back and neck as a kid, Mm. but I would, do things like crack my neck, crack my back and like move my head to the side to kind of feel comfortable. Um, I do a lot of things like that. And then once I was in high school, I started developing a lot of um, GI symptoms. I started getting quite sick when I was eating, but it wasn't to the point where it was like I was malnourished or anything like that. But um, I started getting a lot of um, stuff that I now know is POTS. I would have a lot of palpitations mm. and I actually went to the hospital a couple of times f- because they 
wanted to look into it because I had a lot of chest pain and my heart rate was up. But every time I went, they said it was a panic attack or anxiety. So I just kind of, for a while, for years, I thought it was just something like anxiety or a panic attack or something like that. Um, yeah, I'm. that's horrible. I mean, that's, it's so frustrating, you know, because like when you're being told that you're having a panic attack, you know, when you haven't been, then you start mm -hmm. to um, hyper analyze your own emotional state. And then you might yeah. actually start to have panic attacks because you're, you're starting to panic about, you know, being told that something is happening that isn't happening. And that can turn into the thing that you were being told to begin with. Mm -hmm. And then it just perpetuates the cycle of not being able to get help for something that you actually need help for. Yeah. And how are you not going to be anxious when your chest is hurting and you're afraid you're going to have a heart attack? Yeah, like, <laughs> totally. You don't know why your chest is hurting. So, yeah, that's why concerning. A, that's why diagnosis is so important is because you know, for something like POTS, you know, mm -hmm. postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, um, something I've learned a lot about from doing this podcast. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, basically, like you go from lying down to sitting up, your heart rate jumps really high. And mm -hmm. you'll, you'll feel those, you'll feel your heart pounding, or you might feel some palpitations or um, get really dizzy. And it sounds like you experienced some chest pain as well. It's like, yeah, that would make me anxious, you know? <laughs> and it's not, it's not the, it's not that anxiety is making your heart pound fast. It's that your positional change is making your heart pound fast. And if you yes. know why, and you understand what's happening, then you can mitigate the anxiety. But if you don't know why, then the anxiety might get higher, especially if you're told incorrectly that the cause was anxiety to begin with. Like, yes, that will create an anxiety cycle. Yeah, definitely. Um, and POTS is also linked to having higher rates of anxiety. Hmm. So, um, just because it has to do with the autonomic nervous system. Yeah, totally. And, and also it's like, you know, anxiety is a legitimate concern that is hard to live with as well. You know, like anxiety mm -hmm. can be really debilitating. So yeah, all these doctors saying it's just anxiety and then kind of sending you out the door, like that's not fair either. Even if it exactly. was just anxiety, we need to like get help for that too. Like why, you know, why is everything so backwards? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah. Okay. So you were in high school when you started experiencing POTS and symptoms you have experienced some Ehlers-Danlos type symptoms your whole life, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. um, and then some issues with the GI system uh, happening in high school as well. So when did you sort of tip the line into becoming, you know, chronically ill, where it sort of like took over a huge portion of your life? I would say definitely in college. I've been chronically ill my whole life because of my genetic condition, but the symptoms got to a point where they were debilitating once I was in college. My freshman year, I started um, having more GI symptoms, but I wasn't too concerned. And then once I was in my sophomore year, I ended up having a lot of abdominal pain and I found out that I had a um, epigastric hernia. So I ended up having to have surgery for that. And after the surgery, I was having a lot of GI problems still. And I would regurgitate my food and I had a lot of nausea, sometimes vomiting. 
And I saw a GI for that. And basically we just, he kind of decided that I wasn't in pain and that I was just uncomfortable. So I, we, we did do a gastric emptying test and I looked back at it and it actually said I had rapid gastric emptying, but at the time, um, I didn't know that was like a problem, <laughs> yeah. but it wasn't as bad as it is now. So, um, but I stopped seeing him after about six months or maybe longer. Um, How does it feel looking back and knowing that it sounds like this was a really bad doctor that he saw the evidence of the rapid gastric emptying and ignored it. He, or thought that it wasn't a big deal. He, you were telling him I'm in pain and he's like, okay, we'll put that down as she's uncomfortable. Um, how does it feel looking back and knowing that some of your issues could have been addressed sooner if it hadn't been for experiencing this medical gaslighting from this person? I mean, it's definitely really frustrating. Um, I think that it sometimes makes me like it. I feel like I kind of, it comes in waves sometimes because I've had many professionals deny like legitimate symptoms I'm having as something that's functional or in my head. And not to say functional pain is really bad sometimes. And I, I, I sometimes think that functional pain is has a cause, but we just don't know what the totally. cause is yet. Absolutely. And it's really hard because I don't think doctors always see it that way. So they kind of dismiss if they diagnose you because that doctor ended up diagnosing me with functional dyspepsia. Um, I've never heard of that. What is that? It's basically like, it's like gastroparesis. Like you're having the symptoms of gastroparesis, but they don't don't have a physical cause for those symptoms. So it's basically kind of like a diagnosis of the symptoms, but not the cause. Interesting. So it's like yeah. saying, you know, it's like giving, it's like a diagnosis of exclusion. Like we see there's something happening, but we don't know what it is. Um, yes. So, but, but is that, is that help? Was that helpful in your case? Does that help you get any care or treatment? I mean, some people it's helpful, but um, my doctor was telling me to drink um, apple cider vinegar. He put me on a FODMAP diet that didn't work for me. I was put on uh, several different antacids and I maybe saw a little improvement, but I really did not see improvement in my symptoms. Um, I actually ended up later, we found out that I most likely developed SIBO because of being put on so many ant antacids. Yeah. See, what, is, um, what is that? SIBO? SIBO is basically, I don't know the exact words for the abbreviation, but it's when you have a bunch of bacterial overgrowth in mm. your um, intestines or stomach. I, I, I'm not sure. I think it's the intestines, but yeah. I, I eventually like about a couple of months ago, they put me on, um, antibiotics and it, it took, a, took away a lot of pain I was experiencing. And it was actually my, my primary care physician has literally been the, probably one of the most helpful doctors in, this diagnosis journey for me. That's great. I mean, that's the most important 
doctor to have on your side. If you don't have a primary yeah. care that listens to you and believes you, you know, find a new one. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I definitely agree. I yeah. got really lucky because my um my primary actually knew what Ellers Danlow syndrome was and POTS because she has other clients. Uh, like I think she has one or two other people with Ellers Danlow syndrome and POTS, and one of them actually has mast cell activation syndrome. So it's also been helpful for me with that. Definitely. Have you been seeing this pri- this good primary care all throughout? Like, were you seeing this this same primary care doctor when you were seeing this gastroenterologist that was not very helpful? No, I actually didn't have a primary care physician till um, about a year ago, hmm. a little bit over a year ago. So, um, wow. I so basically, I I ended up finding this video on. Ellers Danlow syndrome, and it was on YouTube. Someone with Ellers Danlow syndrome, I think their name was Izzy, but I forgot their last name. But I watched this video and I was like, wait a minute, this this sounds like me. <laughs> but I was like, but I can't be that sick. Like, I can't be like sick enough to actually have Ellers Danlow syndrome. Like, this is probably a lot of this is normal. So I kind of put that on the back burner. Um, but eventually once I, uh, was, um, in my junior year of college, I ended up contracting a virus. We didn't know what kind of virus it was. I actually got like two, a virus, a bacterial infection, and then I got a virus again. Mm-hmm. And this virus, like basically swelled up my tonsils, um, And that lasted like over a month of just being super sick. And eventually it became break and it was really hard to get through the rest of that school year. But I started waking up and having a really hard time getting out of bed um, because when I would get out of bed, I would stand up or sit up and my whole vision would turn black. And I ended up having these episodes where I was just feigning every morning when I was trying to get out of bed. And I would spend a lot of time in bed because I was so, so tired. And my heart just felt like it was racing and I just felt really short of breath. And uh, yeah, I didn't really know what was happening at the time. Wow. So this virus kind of can't you you got like a couple viruses and a bacterial infection at the same time and um and do you feel like you were having more extreme versions of your um pots symptoms and ellis danlos symptoms like your body just sort of went into overdrive with what you already had like bad combo with this virus and suddenly you're in a really bad spot Yes. Um, yeah, there's definitely like my symptoms that I had prior were a lot worse. And then there was also new symptoms because prior I had only fainted once in my life, but then after this virus, I just started fainting a lot more often, um, which was really scary at the time because I didn't know what was wrong. And I kind of had this feeling like, am I dying or like, but I didn't, my family is very much like you're healthy. You don't need to see the doctor. Like 
kind of that mentality. So I kind of kept a lot of this to myself and um, I just kind of tried to push through, push through it and see what um, would happen. Um, but I, it ended up just not, it got a little bit better, but it never really went away, um, at that time. And I talked to one of my friends cause I remembered part of, um, the video on Ehlers-Danlos syndrome that, that, uh, woman made, um, that she also had postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And I bought myself my own um, oximeter that can take your heart rate. And I started just laying down and then I would stand up after 10 minutes and see if my heart rate would go up. And it was going really high up. And I kind of was like, wait a minute, like (laughs) this is, kind of lining up to POTS maybe. Yeah. Um, so you diagnosed yourself with both with both Ehlers-Danlos and POTS based yes. off this video you saw on YouTube, which is, yes. I mean, that's why we're here today talking about this is in the hopes that other people will, you know, other people who are experiencing things that they don't understand will hear you talk about it and realize that their, their experience is lining up with yours. And no mm-hmm. new things to get checked out for. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, I, it's so, I'm so conflicted about this. It's because, like, we shouldn't have to be our own doctors. But yeah. so many of us just fall through the cracks. And this type of, like, awareness and advocacy of, you know, getting up on a platform and talking about what you've experienced can be really powerful and can really help other people. So, you know, I'm just, you're, you're experiencing a full circle thing right now where you're now doing the thing that helped you to get diagnosed. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. That's why I share my story on TikTok because, um, there's been a lot of people who've actually reached out to me. That's like, I, I found out I had this because you shared your story and like that, that's why I want to share my story with people because, that's what got me my diagnosis and it's brought me so much hope. And I actually have some treatment options that have been helpful and it's given me back part of my life that I had lost at that time. Wow. Yeah. That's so powerful. Uh, So once you figured out kind of what it was through this YouTube video, how did you get your official diagnosis? Did you find a new doctor? Did you find a new (laughs) primary care? Like what, what happens next? So it kind of, I went back to school and I, I actually was interning somewhere and I was having all these symptoms and I didn't know they had Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, but I already knew in the back of my mind that I was like, maybe I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And I would come in exhausted and just so lightheaded. I would have like dislocation subluxations while I was there. And they actually brought up like, have you ever looked into Ehlers-Danlos syndrome? And I, I was like, no, <laughs> but I actually think I have it. Um, <laughs> but um, so basically she kind of gave me a name of a doctor that I could see at the Cleveland clinic, which I uh, eventually like I made an appointment, but it was, um, it took a couple months. Um, I had also been waiting to make an appointment with my primary care physician. I actually made an appointment like 
months ago, but like at that point months ago, but I by mistake canceled my appointment at 2 a.m. like three months before the appointment. And I went to the appointment and they were like, you canceled your appointment. And I was like, well, can I make a new appointment? <laughs> and they were like, well, I think you have to find a new uh, primary physician because it was going to take uh, five months or six months to be able to see, because uh, I was not established with a primary care physician. So I ended up finding one that could see me in three months instead of um, five to six months. Um, so I was still waiting on that appointment, which I kind of saw her in between when I got to go see the person in Cleveland. And she agreed, like, she was like, yes, I, I also am thinking that you might want to see a geneticist. Um, but I said, like, let's wait to see what happens in Cleveland. And then um, if nothing happens, we'll see a geneticist. And she also referred me to a cardiologist. So eventually I was able to see the Cleveland Clinic doctor. It was via Zoom. So I wasn't in person. And she highly suspected that I either had hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or classical like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So she wanted me to see a geneticist before she before there was any sort of official diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, so basically I went back to my primary and we made a geneticist appointment. And when I went to my cardiologist appointment, however, um, at this point, I didn't have the official EDS diagnosis, and he basically didn't see a need to do any sort of tilt table tests or look into POTS. Um, he, rec he actually told me that it might be something called, I forgot what it's called. It's like when your blood pressure drops or your heart rate drops. However, um, I already knew that my heart rate was going up, but he he still was like, okay, then maybe I brought up, could I record this and also get a blood pressure monitor and record these standing up episodes and see um, if I might have POTS. And he agreed to that, but mostly he just wanted me to have salt and drink water and wear compression socks. So I left the cardiologist and went by his recommendations. I I bought the blood pressure monitor. I was drinking more water. I was taking, um, uh, putting more salt on my food. And uh, I tried compression socks, but I really hated them. And they, I didn't really see much improvement. So I didn't really follow the compression socks. However, I was still having debilitating symptoms. I was fainting and um at the time, I was having a lot of GI symptoms, but I was so like, I just didn't know. I was, I really struggled to drink more water. Like drinking water was really hard for me, but I didn't really know that there was that much of a problem, but I wasn't having enough intake at that time. Um, so basically what happened was eventually I was having so many fainting episodes that I had several times where I went to the ER and eventually they put me 
on observation. And I, during that time, I wore a heart monitor and they started to realize like that my heart rate was getting really, really high when I was standing up or sitting up or moving. And then so like less than a week later, I ended up getting hospitalized because I was malnourished and I actually found out that I had a eating disorder at the time. I think a lot of the the just not having control of my body and just I there was so much that changed in my life and so much I couldn't do anymore and I kind of turned to food at that time which I didn't even realize until I was hospitalized and at that time, that's basically when I got diagnosed with POTS because I was wearing the heart monitor the whole time while I was there. Um, so I never got a tilt table test. Hmm. What what sort of eating disorder did you develop? I had, so prior when I was in um, high school, I had anorexia, but um, I had recovered for a while and just within a couple of months, I, I, I think I relapsed, but I, I'm pretty sure it was just a combination of the symptoms I was having. And we just didn't really understand it at the time, mm-hmm. at the time. So basically after this hospitalization, I was like, okay, I don't want to deal with this. So I'm going to go to residential and just re- recover from my eating disorder. And there was definitely eating disorder components, but when I went to residential, they actually knew a lot about EDS, POTS, and mast cell activation syndrome, and they knew that I was highly suspected for EDS, and I had the POTS diagnosis. And when I had that list of like foods that I was really struggling to eat, they 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 made a meeting for me with the head of nutrition, and they were like, "Hey." we think you have mast cell activation syndrome. These foods are high in histamine. Mm. And even if it's not conscious, we think that you actually are reacting to these foods and you, you just don't like, you just aren't consciously aware of it because the foods were so random and like, didn't make much sense. And so they put me on a low histamine diet while I was there. And I saw significant improvement in my joints, in my pain, in my GI issues at that time. Um, and I, I wasn't like, my body felt so much better. Um, I did have very debilitating POTS, but they also knew a lot about POTS. And I brought up possibly doing IV um, fluids because nothing was helping. Um, they also put me on a medication for my mast cell activation syndrome. And then the head doctor looked into um, IV fluids and he was like, yes, we're going to try this. And he went ahead and I started having weekly um, IV infusions, which uh, ended up really significantly changing my quality of life i could i have infusions of of just like nutrients it was saline 
Saline. Um, just like just like the fluids you would get at the hospital. So I I was after these infusions, I wouldn't be fainting. I I felt like I could sit and stand and like walk around. I could go outside. This residential was in Arizona, so it was very very hot, but I was actually able to withstand going outside. Um like up to three days after these infusions Mm. and it just, I could think again, like I, I, I had missed being able to like, actually like interact with the world. And like, it kind of gave me back like the social part of my life and just being able to like be conscious, I guess. Wow. And yeah. Do the doctors have an explanation as to why the saline was so helpful? I I don't know exactly. I do know some of the theories is that it like increases your blood volume. I don't know the type of it also helps with dehydration which I struggle to drink water and get dehydrated all the time. But um basically I don't know the type of pots I have so I don't know if I struggle with blood volume. But um, that's one of the theories on why saline infusions can be helpful for POTS. Yeah, interesting. That's that's a new one for me. I haven't heard that before. Um, yeah. Yeah. So does that bring us up to to current? Uh, that's about a year ago. <laughs> a year ago, okay. And that's like, a, so that's like the first year after you had, you, the virus that you had that kind of set everything into high gear was two years ago. Is that right? Uh, November 2020. Okay. Yeah, so... Like a year and a half ago. So yeah, so what happens next? So basically, I got out of residential and I was already experiencing these GI problems that started getting worse while I was in residential. I after I'd eat, I would have to lay down. I couldn't I couldn't really like concentrate after I had meals. Um I was having a lot more nausea than I was in the beginning. And I I ended up, after you go to residential, there's a step down called uh, PHP, which is partial hospitalization. So I went into a PHP program and uh, they didn't know anything about Ehlers-Danlos syndrome in POTS. So it was quite hard to um, get a low histamine diet while I was there. and. Um, But anyway, I started having more and more symptoms. I would wake up throwing up. I would, um, I would have a really hard time having breakfast. And then later in the day, I was having a hard time eating food because I was getting so nauseous in these waves that would just like come over me right after I got out of residential. I actually went to a geneticist and he diagnosed me with hyper hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, He didn't do genetic testing because um, he highly suspected it was the hypermobile type based on clinical criteria. And the classical like -like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is not on the general Ehlers-Danlos uh, genetic testing it's on like a separate one for some yeah, reason and the hypermobile is the one the only form that they have not 
identified the genetic variant yet, but they're close. Yes. Yeah. So that makes Um, sense that if he thinks you have the hypermobile, you know, it wouldn't show up on the test. So it, it is, you know, more of a clinical diagnosis at this point. Yeah. And we didn't, I didn't even know I had cousins with, uh, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome at that time. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, (laughs) so I got out of PHP, um, in outpatient or whatever. It's just like therapy and having a dietitian. Um, and my dietitian has been quite helpful throughout this process. Um, and I ended up getting, I would have these episodes of nausea and vomiting, and I was already in PHP. I was drinking formula instead of food because, not as a supplement, but because I could not consume food as well. And eventually I was on just drinking formula and at that point, I started not even tolerating formula or water. I was throwing up water. I couldn't keep down formula. And I ended up back in the hospital where they placed my feeding tube um, for outpatient. But that hospitalization was super traumatizing. <laughs> what happened? Um, uh, they, so basically, <laughs> when I was there, they, the the plan was with my outpatient doctor who was they call it adolescent medicine which basically is a, a doctor that specializes in eating disorders but at that time i didn't have a gi but my adolescent medicine doctor is like this isn't an eating disorder this is something physical i can't help you figure out what it is but i can help you get nutrition so she uh, I basically went inpatient um, with her support, but when I was inpatient, I was under the care of the the individuals that were for eating disorders. So the whole time, their goal was to get me off the feeding tube, even though the goal of going in was to get a feeding tube. <laughs> And there was like a lot of things said, like I was having severe mast cell reactions because they were having me eat like high histamine foods. I would break out in hives. I was throwing up. I, I was getting in a lot of pain and they basically said, we still don't know if this is a physical issue. And it just was a lot of just like, gaslighting there the the person there was like well if you have a feeding tube you're not going to have a quality of life anymore you're not going to be able to go out with your friends you're not going to be able he was just kind of trying to scare me out of it but i was trying to like explain to him that i'm not going to have quality of life i'm in extreme pain i am throwing up my food and i can't drink water how am I going to be able to have any sort of quality of life if you just send me out of here with the same thing I came in with and just put the Band-Aid on and wait till I'm malnourished again just to have me come in again and like do the whole process again? And at one point, it was near the end where I was going to be discharged in two days and they have like teams that come in 
to see you. And outside the room, I heard them say, well, we don't know if this is a physical issue. No, that, that she has anxiety. And they kind of listed like that kind of thing. And they came in and I was just like, I told the doctor, I was like, I feel so invalidated. Like, I, and I, it was just awful. Like I literally like, it, it felt so hopeless because I, I was even like, there was a test called like a trip taste test. And they told me like, well, you have to prove that you have mast cell activation syndrome, but Triptase is actually only in a really elevated and only a really small portion of mast cell activation patients. And they were telling me to take this triptase test when I was in flares. But when I was breaking out in hives and having all the symptoms, they were denying that I could get this triptase test. And they were also talking to the doctor about not logging that I was throwing up. And it was just like, I had never had an experience where I felt that unsafe in like a hospital setting. Wow. And I, I don't know. I just, I, I was actually, I, I don't have thoughts of ending my life but at that time like I literally was just in the hospital like just like nothing's gonna help me I'm not going to get better and I was even gaslighting myself I'd go through these meltdowns of being like what if I'm making this up what if it's all in my head and it was just a long two weeks stay <laughs> wow felt like a long time i can't imagine being in a hospital for two weeks feeling that way that's an absolute nightmare just feeling yeah. like wh what you're experiencing is is being ignored and devalued your your humanity is being devalued they're questioning everything that you're saying they're trying to blame you for your own symptoms you know yeah. it's like everything that's wrong with the medical system all happening while you're trapped there it's like you're in like this prison i that i can't mm -hmm. oh that that sounds really really horrible <laughs> that sounds yeah. like such a horrible thing to have to live through yeah definitely i tried to keep like the benefit of the doubt i was like well they're they're trained on eating disorders and maybe this is just they're afraid that i'm like in denial or something but it just never gives like you can't have hives from an eating disorder. You can't be breaking out and like rashes like that. And yeah. it was so much evidence that there was something going on that there was no need to even be trying to scare me out of having a feeding tube when the whole point of me going in was to get an outpatient feeding tube. Yeah. And also, I mean, very, you know, we talk, there's a lot of talk on TikTok about ableism and this doctor telling you that you can't have a feeding tube because it will make it so that you can't go out and hang out with your friends. Mm -hmm. Like that is, you know, that's what we're talking about with ableism is like, if you don't have a choice and that's what you need, then his values about what is appropriate out in public, those don't matter. You know, like your health and your, your, you're feeling like, oh, wow, I feel nourished and like I can go out and do something. That's what matters. And yeah. for him to like put his own 
um, value system above what you're saying as a patient, like that's very dangerous ableism. And the whole point of quality of life is from the patient's perspective. Um, I, yeah. I don't think that a doctor should be placing their opinion of quality of life onto a patient um, when they're not living the actual experience. That's a great point. You need this feeding tube and you're going to a doctor and, and asking for help with that. And they're like, oh, well, using a feeding tube is failure and we need to get you off of that instead of understanding why it is that you need it and the type of benefit that it has been giving you and the fact that it's allowing you to live, live your life more. You're way more likely to go out and hang out with yes. friends with a feeding tube in than you would be without because you have the nutrition that you need to have the energy to do the thing in the first place. Yes, my feeding tube has given me life back and allowed me to do so many things that I wouldn't be able to do without it. Not that they should be glamorized, but when you need it, it's it's not something that's a failure. It's something that's a tool that allows you to have quality of life and live a meaningful life and do things you want to be doing in your life as opposed to just being malnourished all the time and just having these symptoms and being in and out of the hospital constantly. Totally. Yeah. Like you don't need to adjust to society's standards. Society yeah. needs to adjust their standards to allow for your existence. It's exactly. like, that's what, that's what we're fighting for is for, um, for people to stop judging everyone by, by their own standards and start trying to understand what everyone else's standards are and how that's different for every person. So why can't we just allow people to do what is right for them? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So you had this horrific stay in the doctor's office. Um, how, how have things changed since then? So a lot has happened actually. <laughs> um, when I got out, it was about um, six months ago. Um, so basically I eventually got connected with Cleveland Clinic for a program called National Consult, where basically you're connected to several different doctors and they work together through one internal medicine doctor. And so I eventually went to Cleveland and they basically told me that there's definitely something wrong and they don't think it's an eating disorder and they believe me. Mm. And it was very relieving because I just was so afraid at that point that no one was going to believe me anymore. And so I went there and they're like, most likely it's going to be something that is chronic, but we want to figure out what it is. So they had the they the internal medicine doctor contacted the GI doctors because I couldn't see the GI doctor till actually June 7th this year. So I'm still waiting to see the GI there. But they basically ordered testing to be done. And I had been waiting for to see a GI doctor locally. So after I went there, I saw my GI doctor locally and they um, ordered these tests and like another test and it started the testing process for figuring out what was going on. Um, after my hospitalization, I didn't know this, but my primary doctor was 
just fighting for me while I was there. She was, she was very against, like she was reading the notes and she was like, this is not okay. This like something is wrong. You can't like, and when I got out of the hospital, she was like, okay, I looked into something it's called SIBO. You might have this. So I want to trial you on a, uh, antibiotic because it's, really hard to get insurance to cover any sort of SIBO testing. So I ended up going on this antibiotic and, um, during when I was on it, I ended up in a ton of pain, but after I would, I, it took away a lot of the pain I was experiencing and, um, bloating, but I still was having significant symptoms. Um, and I think, it took several months to get testing. And I think there was this period of time where, and I still go through this, where I'm just grieving my body. Um, It's a lot of um, just like times where you realize that your life has been shifted and changed. It's like, it felt like at that time that like my life had just been flipped upside down. I had lost my biggest passion in the world, which was aerial performing and aerial dancing. I, I, I was, I actually took medical leave and, um, then I was part-time in school. I, I, I just got out of last semester part-time. Um, and I just felt like it was so hard to be in that college environment around so many people that I felt like just really didn't know what that was like because they could do so many things like they were going out with their friends they could Mm. there was just like that period where I was thinking about that Mm. and I I guess it felt like I was losing part of myself it was like I was losing the parts of myself that I loved but um I definitely like started working through that and I have a very different mindset on that um, because I think that even though I've had to lose my biggest passions um, at that time, I've been able to gain a lot of um, just awareness on chronic illness and it's inspired me to take a career path um, of helping people with chronic illness. Um, I've noticed even when I go to my counselor, they don't really know about chronic illness and they don't know how much like pain it is to just be so isolated from people and not be able to do basic humanly things. Yeah. (laughs) And just the medical gaslighting. And I think that has just driven me to want to be a social worker even more and become a therapist because I want other people who are going through this to have that support and have someone there that knows the experience. And like, even if it was like a mentor program that I could create or something like that, I, I just see such a need for mental health support that specializes in knowing kind of, even if it was like a training, knowing these things that people go through. Um, And I know there are some for like cancer, but I think it should be expanded for 
all chronic illnesses and like so everyone has this access to more chronic health, chronic illness mental health i guess yeah, totally someone who understands the gaslighting that we all experience and knows how crucial it is when you speak with someone who has a chronic illness to to not devalue their experience you know because like yeah. I, that that's the first thing that everyone tries to do is like, well, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Yeah. You're you're obviously not taking good enough care of yourself or doing enough yoga or eating the right diet, having no idea what we've been through and all the things mm -hmm. that we've tried and all the things that didn't work. And, and, and someone who understands, you know, like, yes, it's important to have like physical activity, but, but how difficult that can be and how it only the certain types of activities can be safe. And, you know, like finding ways to talk through that without devaluing the experience of the individual. Like that's what I need when I seek, you know, uh, mental health help through like therapy or whatever else. Mm -hmm. um, like that's what I need individually. And that's what I need from my doctors. But I know that a lot of them don't know how to do that. And the yeah. ones that do are, are my favorites. <laughs> um, yes. And the ones that don't, I have to find ways to work with them with like the knowledge that they might say something that's like super offensive without knowing it because they don't really understand how to talk to someone who's chronically ill. You know, mm -hmm. it, it always feels like they're, they're trying to like, there's like a shut off valve. Like the valve is open when you go in and like water's flowing through it. And that water is like the care that they're willing to give you. And then as you start talking, they start like, like, turning this valve to close it it's like oh well do you have anxiety do you have mental health issues mm -hmm. like have you uh do you get exercise do you like do all this stuff to take care of yourself and it's like they're looking for any reason to close that valve and stop helping you um and it just happens over and over to me where i'm like okay well that person just shut off all care and i need to find another doctor because they're not willing to help and they stop answering my questions over my chart and it's well we've tried everything and nothing works so <laughs> i'm not going to answer your questions anymore you know it's like goodbye <laughs> yeah it's like why is that the norm like why are doctors constantly looking for ways to you know to like shoo you out of their way um yeah. and i understand that like sometimes these doctors have like 2000 patients and you're one of many and they have 15 minutes to talk to you once every couple of months uh but you know but there's this disconnect between the reality of what's happening in people's bodies and the care that they're getting so we need more healthcare workers who are willing to bridge that gap and absolutely mm -hmm. more like mental health workers who are willing to bridge that gap so you know, it's incredible yeah. that, that your experience has kind of driven you in this new direction. I totally hear what you're saying about feeling like you've lost the part of yourself that you loved. You know, I totally relate to that. I've experienced a lot of that. But there are more parts of yourself that you love that you haven't discovered yet, you know, and, and yeah. you're, you're finding them because you've been challenged. And that's so valuable. And you're so young. You have so much life ahead of you and so much, you know so much to learn about yourself and so much to learn about your diseases and so many ways to learn to cope that you haven't even discovered yet, you know, that, that maybe science hasn't even discovered yet. So there's, there's so much ahead of you that might not look at all like what you'd expect. And the important thing is to keep fighting and advocating for yourself. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a lot of like, I found myself having to build new identity, not that I'm a new person. And there's a lot of stuff about me that is still true, 
but like there's new things I I'm building for myself like I'm getting more into like some art forms that I I loved but I didn't do as much or just finding other platforms and building community and the chronic illness community I wouldn't have that if I wasn't chronically ill yeah (laughs) and just focusing on those kind of things but also I think it's always important to leave room for moments of grief I think that it's so important to give yourself that grace and um give yourself space for that because just pushing all that down is just gonna it's gonna build up it's still affecting you and there's nothing wrong with dealing with those emotions yes you don't want it to like overcome your whole life and you don't want to get to a place where you're like oh my gosh I can't do anything anymore but it's so important to still let yourself feel those emotions absolutely yeah that's such a good point um yeah so I my body is starting to wear down a little bit. I'm feeling like I'm going to need to lie down soon. But I want to make sure we get through um, as much of your story as we can. And you mentioned that you have... Sorry, I'm dis- talking way too much. No, not at all. I mean, there's just so much to say. You know, there's there's a yeah. lot. You've been through a lot. And I... You can cut out whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like... I mean, it's always impossible to to tell someone's entire story in an hour, you know? Yeah. But before we wrap up, I want to make sure we finish your story. So what what have we not covered yet in the last six months um, since you had that horrific hospital stay? So basically, I had some testing done. And at that point, I, I, I highly doubted that they were actually going to find anything on my upper GI series. But they found out that I have both rapid gastric emptying and rapid small bowel transit. And that was such a relief. Like mm. I, I I felt very validated and I looked into it and I was like, oh my gosh, this really explains what I've been going through. And it doesn't explain everything, but it was the first time for my GI issues that it just was like, I had an answer and it was like, this is not in my head. I, I've been gaslighting myself. Like I would go on and off where I'm like, okay, I'm just going to eat this and see what happens. And I would get really sick. And I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm not crazy. And I would do that over and over. But yeah. then once I did this test and like got this answer, it kind of gave me some, a little bit of closure with that. Mm. Not, I still do that and really struggle with that. I still have a lot of like trauma with like feeling like I have to prove myself to my doctors, but just getting that answer has changed a lot for me. And it's also the, I ended up getting hospitalized, uh, about a month ago because I stopped tolerating my feeding tube and that hospitalization went so much smoother. Like since I had answers, they treated me so much differently in the notes I saw. They, they did say maybe psychosymptomatic, one of the doctors, but like the, the main doctors were like, yes, this, this makes sense. And they were helpful. They got me back on my feeding tube and it just was, such a change and gave me a lot of a lot more hope in doctors but also I still have a lot of doctors that are like like 
I went to see an allergist and they don't believe in mast cell activation syndrome, but my neurologist just says you definitely have mast cell activation syndrome. We just, but it's hard because I can't get the right testing done. But anyway, um, my most recent colonoscopy, um, my most recent endoscopy, which was a couple days ago, showed that I have some sort of um, narrowing in my duodenum. It's like an it looks like an external compression. So that might also be explaining these GI symptoms I'm having. So I think I'm finally getting to a point where I'm having some relief, but it's also this point where I'm realizing that these things aren't easy fixes. And that is really hard for me to like kind of accept, but I don't know what the future holds, but I try to stay in the present moment mm. and just give my do the things that give myself quality of life. I know I've heard you say some things on your podcast about doing things for quality of life, and I I absolutely agree that it's it's made me a lot more grateful for the small things, and I think I sometimes take things in more. Like when I go outside, I'm like. I am able to walk outside right now. I'm not fainting. I I'm actually enjoying myself and I just get to look at things and like take it in or just like going to the mall or just something really simple like the grocery store like is like I don't know. It's, I don't take it for granted as much as I did before I got really sick. Totally. Yeah, and that's that's like the weird gift of chronic illness is that when you have the days where you can do the simple things, you love them and you appreciate them. Mm -hmm. And you can sit in a moment of joy in a way that you wouldn't have been able to before. Um, yeah. And it can be really powerful. So, yeah. And, you know, and I, it is so, it is really hard to, to know that you have something that you have to continue to manage forever, you know? Like, mm -hmm. that can feel so overwhelming. Like, I've been doing some, uh, my doctor has been experimenting on me with some new medications to try to see if we can improve my quality of life. And I haven't been taking anything for a while. You know, I, I, I've been through periods where I was on different medications or when I w was seeing a naturopath, he had me taking like 30 pills, like, you know, throughout the course of a day. And, it's been a while since I've been taking medication and getting back into the, the, um, the, the, uh, the pattern of just taking something multiple times a day. And like, even that can be so hard of just like forcing yeah. yourself <laughs> because it's like, if I miss this pill, it's bad, you know, <laughs> like mm -hmm. this pill is trying to regulate my heart rate. And if I forget to take it, then I, then it can be bad. So trying to, you know, get back into the habit of just taking a pill a couple times a day can be so hard, you know, and like my body yeah. wants to rebel against it. And it's like, well, I want to not do it. I want to not need it. I want to be able to find a way to not have to. Um, and it reminded me of what you're saying of like trying different foods to see what happens. It's like, yeah, that constant like testing of yourself because doctors are always telling you that you're making it up. You have, it's like, you feel like you, you start to believe it. And it's like, okay, well, maybe I need to test myself by trying to not do the thing that I know is right for me to constantly prove to yourself that you have to do that thing. Um, and it's really hard to accept it because when you start doing it regularly and you start to feel better, then it starts to feel like you don't need it. 
you know, it's weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, well, I'm feeling yeah. better, so I don't need the thing to make me feel better. But then you stop doing it and you start feeling worse because you need it. It's just, mm-hmm. it's a lot, you know, it's a lot to try to learn how to just do, you know, like you have to just do it and you have to get yourself to a place where you internalize the need to do it in a way that, that sort of becomes like a companion instead of an enemy. Yeah, exactly. And it's just hard to accept in general. Like yesterday, my family came over and like, I feel like meals are such a social event and um, they were just having pizza. And I was like, maybe I am able to eat pizza. But I was (laughs) like, no, we're not doing this to myself. And I just like, I just miss being able to do that. And it's so tempting to just try it. Like it's so... I don't know, just see what happens if you go back to normal. But it's like you have like, obviously, you want to try to improve things, but you also have to be aware of where your body's at because you don't want to send your body into big flares and just end up in a, a harder place to get out of. Yeah, totally. Um, there's one thing that you mentioned early on that we haven't talked about, and I'm so curious. You mentioned vocal cord dysfunction, and I just have yes. to I have to ask what what's the situation with that? So actually, my cousin has this. I forgot to mention that, but um, it's basically so it can be triggered by a lot of different things like laughing, the cold, um, and drinking cold things or several other things, but it's basically when your vocal cords start closing up. So it it feels like it's harder to breathe and you might start like hyperventilating more and wheezing because of it. But um, it's something that sometimes overlaps with asthma. So like sometimes I'm having a vocal cord reaction, not an asthma reaction, but they feel kind of similar because they both make it feel like it's harder to breathe. But vocal cord dysfunction isn't something that would cause you to stop breathing or lead to any like life-threatening situations. Interesting. And do they have an idea what, what causes it? I'm not sure, actually. Wow. It's another piece of the puzzle. Well, yeah. I'm so happy to hear that you finally got this uh, rapid gastric emptying diagnosis. Yeah. I can only imagine the relief of making it to that. And mm-hmm. you, you went through such a tumultuous couple of years. And it's, I mean, that one horrific hospital stay is just like such a nightmare. But on the other side of that is this knowledge about what's happening in your body that's actually helpful. And, you know, looking forward towards the future and towards finding more and more ways to deal with this complex chronic illness situation that you're living within. Um, yeah. And I know there's so much more we could talk about, but I yeah. have one, <laughs> one last question for you. We could go on and on. <laughs> I know, I'm sure we could. I, I feel like we barely scratched the surface, but I yeah. do feel like we've also given a, a picture into what you're, you're living through and, you know, a lot of really good stuff to think about in what we've talked about for anyone else living through chronic illness or people seeking a diagnosis or, you know, there's just um, so much good stuff in there. But the one piece that you've talked about with, you know, uh, finding ways to integrate this into your identity, I feel like um, as a 22-year-old college student, that's a really hard time to have to do that. 
So my mm-hmm. last question for you is for anyone else going through something similar to you, um, the progress that you've made in such a small amount of time has been so hard fought. What advice do you have for someone else trying to come to grips with a similar situation? Um, you know, it seems like you've made a lot of progress and you're still struggling through it, but what have you learned so far that you think would be good for someone else to know? Well, the first thing, if you're diagnosed or undiagnosed, always trust your gut. Trust your gut. If you think something's wrong, trust yourself. It's so easy to tell yourself that you're not actually sick or believe things when you're told that they might just be psychological, which psychological things can be debilitating. But if you think something's wrong, trust yourself. Um, Also, it's really hard to be sick, especially when you're young, but try not to compare where you are at to others. Um, Recently, the people in my class have just all graduated and it's really hard not to be like, oh my God, I'm a failure. I have to do a whole another year of college. And I don't know, comparing yourself, try not to compare yourself because everyone walks different paths in life and it doesn't make you a failure. There's a lot that I've been able to gain from taking my time through college. I've been able to give myself more time to take care of myself and build more self-awareness of what I need for myself. And just know there's not a race or like a certain track to your life. It's ever-changing and evolving, and you will find a path that will work for you. And that path will always be changing. You're not going to know what the future is going to hold for you, but try to stay in the present moment and make do things that you enjoy in the present moment, even if they're really little things like, I don't know, just like I don't know, dancing in the rain, like (laughs) just something that you want to do, just have fun with the, when you can. And yeah, (laughs) I don't know. That's fantastic advice. Very wise. I love it. Well, there's so much more to your story. If people want to connect with you, uh, where do they go on social media, TikTok? Tell us where to find you. Yes. I'm always open to talk to people. Um, My TikTok account is chronic underscore cat, K-A-T. So always feel free to like message me or ask questions. Um, I'm a very open book and am always open to supporting other people. Awesome. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for your time today. You did a really awesome job. You've been through so much and you know, there's, there's so much that can be gained from sharing your story. So, you know, other people going through similar things can have someone, someone to turn to someone else's experience to, uh, to hear that they're not alone and to know that, you know, the type of things that you've experienced, the medical gaslighting and, um, and how difficult it can be to find a diagnosis that is not abnormal. Like that is very common. Um, so yeah. yeah, you did an awesome job today. Thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing your story. Thank you. I had such a good time and I'm very grateful I got to share my story. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. 
Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Brooke Walters Schmidt, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Danielle Signorelli, and Alexandria Henderson. And our $25 per month producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.